You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Giannis going to play was not, was Giannis not going to play? That was the big question going into last night. Well, he did play, but it didn't make a difference for the Bucks ultimately as Phoenix takes the early 1-0 series lead in the NBA Finals. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All guests are going to join us on the Goodyear Hotline. And Sarah, I got to admit, we'll start here. I'm excited. We get to do a full Spain and Fitz tonight. Like, I feel like it's been a long time since the two of us got to hang out for an entire evening. But that is what is ahead for us. I mean, I I think it was Monday. Was it? No, we had a short show Monday, didn't we have a short show? <laughs> I don't I think, think I don't know. So. It all runs together. It all runs together. This has felt like three separate weeks because Monday, I thought it was Friday, and then we were off Tuesday, and then we came back. And then, Yeah, it's very confusing. Well, we're going to start with some Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And one thing that I love about working together is that we don't come in usually with guns blazing and massive hot takes. I'm struggling to find a hot take from last night's game simply because when I watched these two teams play, it felt a couple of things stood out to me. It felt like it was a bit of a feeling out process early. Both teams missed a lot of easy baskets. I feel like there was a, a bit of a holy cow we're in the finals moment. And then it also just felt like through the process of what we saw, it was two teams trying to figure out what was going to work for them, what wasn't going to work for them, and how to adjust to these challenges will be the big thing moving forward. Completely agree. I'll start by saying that I was really impressed with how Giannis looked, and I feel heartened about this series being more competitive and going longer because of what we saw in his first game back. He felt like he just got tired. What we saw from him early was impressive and aggressive, and the adjustments that we've seen the Bucks been be able to make, as much as Coach Bud gets criticized, and fairly so, for wanting to stick to certain things the one benefit of Giannis being out for a few games was being able to see what it looks like when other guys have to take on those roles and then trying to make that still a priority even when Giannis is back in the lineup. And that sort of forced change for them I think might be beneficial and might pay off in terms of the ways that they have to look at last night and adjust for game two. We'll get to that later in the show because I do want to get to what the Bucks can do, but I don't want to, I don't want to smooth pass or move too quickly past what we saw from Chris Paul. And I'm counting the last game as well, that 41.0 turnover uh, Mm. performance. And I'm adding that to game one. He looked like a guy who's waited his whole career to be in the finals because he has. And what's most impressive to me, Fitz, is looking at a guy who is not a unicorn. He's a 36-year-old, six-foot probably, but might be one of those guys that are really (laughs) 5'11", 5'9". Yeah. Six foot, 36 year old, a little bit past his peak, just dominating at a time when we're used to seeing Durant and Giannis and LeBron, these physical specimens that uh, that exert themselves and assert themselves because of their physical abilities. And he's just smart. He's just smart and and patient. And I I love watching it because I love anything that tears down the ideas that we think are going to decide for us what basketball will look like forever. Super teams, unicorns, etc. This is a whole different thing. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And it, it really hits me as you talk about it that one thing that we we can say about Chris Paul is that, and I don't mean from his production, but I mean in his approach, he's been very consistent throughout the entire playoffs. Like he brings the same version of himself, it feels like, at all times. And 
you're really right about this. I mean, it's only a week ago that people were questioning whether or not the Suns had an issue bringing Chris Paul back and what did it mean for pace of play and all of these things. It took a couple of games to get his feet under him, and now he's back to who he's been throughout the entire playoff run. I mean, it just it felt like, and you never know, because as you smartly pointed out on Monday, Jay Crowder's the only person on, the, on either of these rosters that has finals experience, right? So mm-hmm. you've got this moment where you don't know how everybody's going to react to this massive thing and Chris Paul has waited so long to get there, it'd be easy to excuse Chris Paul pressing or having sort of a game to forget, compartmentalize it, throw it away, say, hey, he'll get it right. That was just the first night in the finals. I never got a sense of any of that. He was very comfortable on the floor the entire time, and he absolutely just embarrassed Brooke Lopez. To that end, Brian Windhorst, ESPN (laughs) NBA insider, was on Greeny and made it clear what Chris Paul's strategy is going to be moving forward. Despite the league going away from playing traditional coverage with centers, despite the league going away from, you know, plotting centers in general, Mike Budenholzer has always been loyal to Brooke Lopez because he believes the things that he can give him at the other end, specifically the three-point shooting and pulling open the lane for Giannis Antetokounmpo and offensive rebounding, balances it out. He believes that, yes, there's going to be three or four or maybe seven times in a game where Brooke gets isolated out there and gets on an island and gets cooked, and it looks bad. But his statistics and his belief says that on balance, the Bucks can survive it. And you know what? The Bucks were the number one defensive team in the playoffs coming into the finals. They were able to survive all of those onslaughts uh, in the Eastern Conference with Brooke Lopez in there. But Chris Paul is such a different animal, and Chris Paul is going to hunt him and hunt him and hunt him. You know, he is going to force Brooke Lopez into an uncomfortable situation. And that yeah. speaks, Sarah, to the to the intelligence, right, that you were just mentioning about mm-hmm. the way Chris Paul approaches the game. One hundred percent. And the last two thoughts were the were the were the ones I want to pull from there. One is that the Bucks have been able to endure this problem before, not against this particular opponent. So we'll see how much they can adjust and react. But this is not a new thing. This is not something that they have to adjust to on the fly. They have known before the drawbacks of having Lopez in there and, and the issue for them right now is is limited depth, right? You lost um, one of your starters earlier in the postseason that we never even talk about in, in Dante DiVincenzo. But with that limited depth, you can throw in Giannis as your center and sit Lopez. You lose a little bit of rim protection, but more so importantly is you lose the depth of having that guy who can get all those minutes. And when you're limited and when Giannis is maybe not 100%, that's the question of how often and when can they use Lopez without getting him killed. And to the second point, the way that CP3 works the big the the big men on a pick and roll is you could point the finger at the Bucks for not handling it well, but who does? Especially when you have a mobile big like Aiton who can play off of it so wisely and who has learned so quickly under CP3 to do the right thing in those situations. I mean, that's where you have to make them pay for him being 36 and small. And instead, he ends up just playing you like a puppet. That's why I feel like so much of what we've seen from Milwaukee comes back to, as cheesy as it sounds, aggressiveness in so many of these series. When they come out and want to use their size as the reason that they can dominate, it can make all the difference in the world. And I think Wendy makes a really good point on two two instances of this. One, it's easy for me to forget that Milwaukee was the best offensive team in the NBA this season because we become such prisoners of the moment and what we see. And two... 
you know, everybody knows that Budenholzer as a coach is very stubborn, but it has worked, right? So where's the line between wanting him to come in and change everything or say, hey, this is what got us here. We're going to stay with the girl that got us to the ball. So obviously there's a lot to break down on what can change throughout the course of this series. And we're going to do that later in the show, by the way. That was some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. We'll keep breaking down everything that you need to know about the NBA Finals. But obviously there's other, uh, we want to get some other voices involved in it. So we'll do that next. We'll bring in one of our favorite guests on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive. Don't forget the NBA Finals are right here on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night for Game 2 as the Suns host the Bucks. Presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. If you watched last night, you saw Chris Paul prove that uh, all that time he's been waiting to get into the finals. Uh, he was planning and scheming for how to make an impact, and he sure did. You also saw Giannis play a lot more than many of us expected. And if you heard Kevin Arnovitz on ESPN Daily today, he broke down all the aspects of Game 1 so well, we decided to bring him on our show, too. Here he is on the Goodyear Hotline. Kevin, thanks for the time. Hey, thanks for having me. One of the things that I love that you talked about was an answer to a question that I asked someone a week or two ago, which was, why does it feel like Chris Paul's leadership style is working with his current teammates and maybe didn't in the past? And and the way you answered that was pretty obvious, but something I hadn't thought of. And it was so much about who his teammates are and how old he is. Right. And one of the things I said is, you know, people in your own age cohort, your peers don't want to be mentored by someone in their age cohort and their peers, right? You know who does want to be mentored is a bunch of guys in their early 20s who grew up watching you as kids, you know, essentially studied you as a youth player and then, you know, admire the career and trying to assemble the kind of career that you've had. So this was sort of, this is years in the making. Like Chris Paul finally landed on a team that I think could fully take advantage of his leadership skills, a team of guys who are so much younger who really needed a tour guide into how to win in the NBA. So how does that change sort of the narrative? Because I feel like Chris Chris Paul has been the good guy, the villain. Now he's back to the good guy. Like where does the narrative settle on his career for who he is? I mean, I think for most guys, doesn't it settle positively? I mean, when it's all over, even the players that you hate, you kind of come around to love in retrospect. Like I grew up an Atlanta Hawks fan and I despised Isaiah Thomas, largely because he just tormented you know, my team, my childhood team, and he was smug and smiley. And, and like, a lot of people felt that way about Isaiah until he retired. You know, and it's sort of like, I think all these guys who were villains, it's a little bit like professional wrestling. And and you have this persona, and it's played out. And sometimes, as you said, you're a good guy. You go to being a bad guy to the good guy. But I think in retrospect, any great athlete, like, we all watch these games because we love the sports. And at a certain point, you just have to respect the artist. Right. Like, like whether or not they were your cup of tea, whether you thought they were a flopper or a complainer or overrated. It, it, we, I think we tend to kind of settle and say, even the people who hated Barkley, yeah, you never won. Like everybody loves Charles now. Right. Like, <laughs> I think ultimately we get there, don't we? Well, I mean, it's very big of you to say I, some of us still feel that way about Isaiah after the last dance and, you know, other things that. We don't need to talk about, but it's very yeah, big of you to come around. Example, maybe but, but not you know the best saying. example. It's Spain and Fitz. We're talking to Kevin Arnovitz. Okay, one of the things that you guys broke down so well in ESPN Daily that we were just talking about, and I heard Stephen A. ranting about, is the idea that the Bucks got got because they were incapable of, of handling the pick and roll well. And 
That's not getting got to me. That's facing one of the best to ever do it in Chris Paul, who's paired up with a guy who has learned under his wing and is mobile and agile enough to really play off of what the defense is giving them. Can you find a way to look at the personnel of the Bucks and say this is how they should be dealing with this? Because you talked about how they stopped dropping their big man and they tried to start switching as so many people had screamed for, and that sure didn't work either. Right. I mean, I was like, poor Bucks. They they can't, you know, they were inflexible and then they were too flexible. I mean, nobody's <laughs> happy with their defense. And, the, and what's tormenting to them is like they had the best defense in the league for two straight years. This year it dropped off a little while they were sort of experimenting with what, what we might do in the playoffs. It's not stuff we're familiar with. And then they put together one of the best defensive team performances over a six week period in the playoffs. And here they are. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you have to give a little allowance to the fact that you're playing with literally probably the best pick and roll point guard maybe ever. I mean, that's how good Chris Paul is at this particular action. I think we saw a little glimmer of hope, and it was when Brooke Lopez was off the floor and Giannis was playing the center position. Because now you have five mobile, flexible defenders. You can play a little bit up on. You can, you can, play, your, you can play a non-switching defense, but now you can have a big man if that per- big man is Giannis, if that big man is P.J. Tucker, or even Bobby Portis, sort of up at the point of the screen, and you can kind of split the difference. The bad news is you lose Brooke Lopez, who gives you a lot on the offensive end, who's a great rim protector so long as he's not having to dance opposite Chris Paul on roller skates. You know, like a guy who's really good for you 95% of the time, but this one fatal 5%, which is okay, yes, you do all that. Can you defend one-on-one against Chris Paul or Devin Booker? So I think this sort of watch the – Watch the Bucks go small. Giannis playing more center. Maybe Bobby Portis, though he's not exactly terrific at sort of being the big man out on an island. But I think that's what we're going to start seeing a little bit more of is poor Brooke Lopez, I think, is going to sit down more. How much of this, in your mind, though, Kevin, we didn't know if there was going to be Giannis at all, right? And so Giannis is in the game, and now they've got to figure out how Giannis looks being in the game. I mean, how much does that impact whatever their game plan was going into the game and now moving forward? I think Drew Holiday is sort of the most interesting character in that equation because we saw when Giannis was out, you know, Drew got to be a more conventional point guard. So much of the time when Giannis is on the floor, he's essentially sort of the creator. The ball is in his hands. He's a great passer. I mean, you, you can do a lot of things when you give the ball to Giannis Antetokounmpo. When he wasn't there, Drew had some of his best games because he was playing the conventional point guard. He was, he, he's a great, he's his own really good pick and roll point guard. He knows he can muscle his way off a screen and you've seen him finish um, and he's strong. He can work with both hands. When he's with Giannis, he doesn't have as much of a chance to do that. So I think that's sort of, you know, the difference. Can they get some of the Drew of the game five and six against Atlanta when Giannis wasn't there and incorporated into sort of Giannis's back? And maybe in some ways it might work because you can take a little bit off Giannis's plate. I mean, he's not at 100%. Um, and I think Drew Holiday is the real key in your question. Like, that's what you need to do is sort of keep the Drew Holiday who was marshalling the offense when Giannis was gone and give him more opportunities even now that Giannis is back. Spain and Fitz, Kevin Arnovitz is with us here on the Goodyear Hotline talking about game one of the NBA Finals. So let's get to game two. This is um, – this. some people are already, you know, prisoner of the moment style. How can you possibly beat this Suns team? But this has happened uh, at any number of times throughout this postseason where we've swung in wild directions based on injuries or other things. I still see some of the benefits uh, from this team 
that from this game that you just fix some of them, like not allowing the Suns to shoot quite so many free throughs and shooting more of your own uh, to affecting, you know, the defensive choices that they make. I don't see them out of this series at all. Are you are you are you seeing this as a, as a short series because of what you saw in game one? Oh, no, not at all. And I, I think you're exactly right. Like, let, let's say, you know, there's this ledger and, and the red is bigger than the black right now for, for Milwaukee. But there are things, as you just mentioned, just clean up. The Bucks are the best team in basketball at defending without fouling. You know, they did not do that successfully in game one. You just get back to being the Milwaukee Bucks who defend without fouling. I mean, how many points are you going to take off? You know, you take off the board right there. The Bucks are the best or second best defensive transition team in basketball. They give up a ton of fast break points with this kind of sloppy transition. D. clean that up? They're not supposed to get the Phoenix Suns, who aren't a fast team, by the way. They're a half-court Chris Paulton. They're doing 20 fast break points. I mean, they really, given the matchup, that, that's, that should be 14 or 13. Okay, we just saved seven points there. We just saved, what, on the fouling, probably another six or seven. Also, Phoenix made every freaking three throw last night. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> well, Jeff no, they missed, well. like, boy, they, they missed the one. They missed the one. They missed the one, right? But, but as Jeff Van Gundy said on the broadcast, they got to improve their free throw defense, right? I mean, right. I just counted 12 or 13 points right there, which was essentially the margin of the game. And that's just doing two things well that they traditionally do. Poorly. And to your point, Chris Middleton shot zero free throws. That guy is physical. He is strong. He, he is a driver when, 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 he, when he doesn't actually know. He, he actually can shoot anytime he wants over anybody. But he can be more aggressive going to the basket. Um, and also, I don't think Aiton is a gifted rim protector. I think he's a big man who's really learning how to kind of the dark arts of being a big man defender. But I, I, don't, I think there are opportunities for them to attack more. And you said it exactly. And, and Chris Middleton having zero free throws is a problem. Um, he should have five or six. So I, I think to your point, this isn't over. Like we just found 15 to 20 points for the Milwaukee Bucks that are there for the taking. If they just play kind of their average brand of basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be, I think, uh, a, a tight series. And I look forward to seeing Giannis when he's fully healthy and not tired down the stretch as well. Awesome stuff, Kevin. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Kevin Arnovitz with us here on Spain and Fitz. I just noticed his uh, Twitter account is inactive since last year. Very smart, just smarter than all of us, and that might be the biggest reason why. He just knew to get away from the cesspool that the rest of us can't quite escape. Speaking of a cesspool, have you guys heard about the Olympics this year? Wow. We're going to get into some (laughs) of the policies that are absolutely mind-blowing. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Excited for a very complicated Olympic Games in Tokyo that somehow they still insist on calling Tokyo 2020, which really annoys me because it's 2021, no matter what. It's still 2021, even if you put 2020 on the logos and you already printed all that stuff. Uh, But the policies are enraging me far more than that. And a number of them are disproportionately affecting black athletes. And we need to talk about how we can affect meaningful change in policies that are essentially tautological at this point. The arguments for which are, we've always done it this way, or we've never needed that before. And to help us do that, we've got a great guest. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Joining us now, Dr. Nefertiti Walker. I'm going to call her Nef Fitz because I know her, but you have to call her Dr. Walker. I'm going to okay? call her Dr. Walker. Like, okay, you get, perfect. You get the yeah. DR in front of your name, you go doctor. <laughs> the rest of you are like, I would do that. So that just seems like it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so Neff, let's talk about this. Um, you, in addition to your work at uh, UM, UMass Amherst, you recently, I think, is your book done or you're still working on it? The book we're still working on. We're okay. still pitching it. So, you know, editors, publishing houses, hit us up. 
Okay, we'll tease that. Yeah, at Neff Walker, if you wanna if you wanna hear more about the book. Otherwise, we'll tease it next time you're on. But let's talk about this. One of the ones that everybody's talking about is um, the swim cap one, and I'll get to that in a moment. But yes. before that even came out, there was the ruling from the Namibian Olympic Committee that two female runners, uh, 400 meter runners, 18 years old, both of them, would not be allowed to run in the Olympics because medical tests showed that they have high natural testosterone levels. Now, there's a whole other conversation that I've had and will continue to have about trans runners and the regulation of testosterone and what limit matters in, in those conversations. But these are cisgender yeah. women who have always lived their lives and represented themselves and identified as women who are now on the precipice of achieving their dream, being told we don't quantify you as a woman because of an arbitrary testosterone number we have assigned. And this almost always disproportionately affects African and black athletes. How are we still having these decisions be made by a random assigned number instead of understanding the wide variety of genetic makeups of men, women and non-binary people? Yeah, that's a great question, Sarah. And I have to start by saying it's been a rough week for black women in sports um, in general, both friend and foe. It's just been an incredibly rough week with all of these things that have happened, um, where, again, as you said, black women have been disproportionately impacted. But in this case in particular, you know, at the root of this, I think what people are failing to understand is that these organizations began, were created policies were created, structures were set up and placed and did not consider black women, did not consider the intersection of being black and women, but certainly did not consider black women. So everything that we're doing post these organizations being in existence, especially with all the strides that we've made as, you know, globally, as well as if we think about just locally in our country related to race relations, we have to reconsider these policies, these structures, these rules to ensure that we're considering the differences um, between races, ethnicities, um, especially when we look at the intersection of, of gender. So I think it starts there. It starts with the fact that Black women weren't considered. Black women still often aren't considered. And not only does it go back to the roots of these organizations, but it also goes to who's in the room when these decisions are being made and who's in the room when these policies are being reviewed and restructured. Well, Dr. Walker, I think that brings up notice, Dr. Walker, Sarah. Yeah, I'm going to well stay done. totally professional yeah, on this. Uh, Neff is perfectly fine. Neff is perfectly fine. <laughs> I'm telling you, you get that doctor. I'm, I'm not letting it go. Uh, but I do think it, it raises an interesting question, you know, with the swimming and, and diving, with the, with the caps that has been such a huge hotbed for the swimming community. They're, they're talking about this constantly, and the only answer they're being given for why these caps aren't being allowed is essentially that's just not the way it's done. What type of a panel yeah. made the decision on how it should be done, and was there diversity in that panel? Yeah, so, you know, I took a look at their, their website because I wanted to do my research before, before showing up on this show. And you look at the decision makers for the organization. I mean, regardless of the specific panels that are making these decisions, and I understand right now it's under reconsideration because of all the backlash that they've received, you don't have, diver you don't have black women and leadership in this organization. Um, if we look at the numbers of black women that are participating in this sport, you don't have high numbers of black women participating in this sport. So again, I go back to really the roots historically. I mean, if we think about just in this country, historically black people in general have been left out um, of participation when it comes to swimming. Um, if we think about back in the 1920s when these pools were constructed, the fact that there was lots of segregation that was happening. So there's a history of exclusion in swimming in general. There's a history of exclusion when we look at the federation, the international swimming federation. There are histories of exclusion, particularly 
at when we at the intersection of black and gender or woman, um, but also when we just think about black people in general. So I think again, saying that this is what the way things have always been done is saying that we're okay with what we know to be existent since forever, which is institutional structural racism. And I think that's wrong. Dr. Neff Walker is with us here on Spain and Fitz, and I think that point is so valid. There are people who are so unwilling to dive into the historical decision-making that led to our current policies that they will refuse to accept that they were done either intentionally or even uh, accidentally in ways that will prohibit the success or not allow for the success of other, whatever that is in that particular sport or event. And there is such a long history of the idea of black people and swimming that comes from segregated pools to everything from those, you know, absurd and ridiculous flawed social studies that refer to black people as too dense to float or otherwise. Like these are things that you have to understand and know about so that when you're discussing current policy and decision-making you know that it doesn't come from a place of ignorance. It, in fact, very often comes from a place of intentional refusal to accept and allow for the sport to change or look different. And, you know, the, 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 the idea of Shikari Richardson being a American problem or even one that comes from the quote unquote war on drugs, which was a wholly racist policy when it was you know, when it came about in the U.S. is a little flawed because this is actually a WADA thing. And she is, you know basically being affected by a ruling that affects all athletes globally. But there is something to be said for that connection. You can't ignore the fact that these kind of rulings disproportionately affect people of color. No, you, you can't ignore, you know, the disproportionate impact on people of color, but also um, you can't ignore the power of the U.S., right? So there are lots of people I see either online or otherwise that are saying, well, this isn't a U.S. decision. We have no control or power over it, which is interesting that people will say this when it comes to changing or shifting a cultural norm or policy that impacts, in this case, um, and disproportionately black people, um, but not in other cases. So, you know, I think that's a terrible excuse. The, the, the excuse that this is the way things have always been done is a terrible excuse. I think we have to continue to evolve. I mean, that's the purpose of sport, right, is to evolve and become more inclusive And it just baffles me that people are so resistant to interrogating the histories of these policies, of these structures, of these norms, and trying to shift them and change them to make them more inclusive. Do you believe that if we went to the global organizations that we could affect change? I mean, I would imagine, yes, I have to believe that. I have to believe that um, if, in particular, us as, as a country, but if other countries went to them with reasonable explanations geared towards inclusion. I mean, this is at the heart of all of these various federations. If you look at their constitutions, if you look at their mission statements, even on their website, they're speaking about making a global impact and reaching societies all across the globe, yet they're enforcing and perpetuating policies and norms and these structures that exclude people. It just doesn't align. There's significant misalignment with what they say they do and how they say that they're impacting the world and what they're actually doing with their policies. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. Dr. Nefertiti Walker is with us here on, on Spain and Fitz. 
talking about the many policies in the Olympics and federations uh, around the Olympics that are disproportionately affecting black women. And, you know, the the swim cap one is is, is patently absurd, which is probably why it's the one yeah. that's most being looked into to change, because there is no reasonable reason to defend it. Um, the marijuana yeah. one is complicated because certainly other countries have a much more difficult relationship with that than we currently do as we are evolving toward treating it in a realistic way for a plant. Um but the one involving testosterone, I think, is incredibly complicated because science says the cutoff figure is arbitrary and yes. that it can't be used to decide whether someone is qualifies as female. And we've had this conversation for years now about Castor Semenya, who should be out there yes. winning races and instead is being unfairly prevented from doing so because of random athletics bosses and leaders deciding to limit the abilities of women. And Neff, that's what I think this is about, really, in some of these cases, is when we see Michael Phelps do something and we find out it's because his body processes lactic acid differently and his limbs are a million times longer, he could have webbed feet for all we care, and we would say, what a gift, right? But when a woman does something we never could have imagined her achieving, so often we find a way to tie it to cheating or an unfair advantage or in, in these cases, testosterone levels, which aren't even scientifically le- linked to better performance. And I don't know where to start with that, because that feels like uh, we just live in a patriarchy and we have for the entirety of our existence. And we're constantly going to be expected to not be able to achieve until we do so. And then we have to do it without any possibility of impropriety or else we'll be shut down and pushed back until we, we, we can't achieve those heights anymore. Yeah, I mean, you you said it better than I probably could, actually. But you're exactly right. I mean, this is the root of, in particular, when we think about the the T-levels and all of the women that are being disqualified because of that, the root of it is we're saying that the standard, the gold standard is being a man, is competing at that level. And anything above this level means that you should be competing with men. Again, we know this to not be true. We know that what the science says that this isn't true. But we're holding on to it because it upholds a standard, um, whether patriarchy or otherwise, that we're comfortable with as a sport, as an organization, as a world globally. Our sports are comfortable with having these very clean distinctions between men's and women's sports. And until we become less comfortable, um, until we become more comfortable with sort of undoing those distinctions and trying to interrogate them and better understand our bodies and how we function and how to compete and be inclusive – of the various, you know, ways that people can can be as humans, then we're going to continue to force people into boxes. And we're going to continue to have sort of this very sexist standard and way of thinking about sport where anything less, if you're not male identified at birth, then you have to be interrogated. You have to be completely sort of um, examined constantly. Just again, the integrity of your humanness is is torn apart because people Mm -hmm. are trying to ensure that you are woman. And again, Completely sexist. I mean, when I think about this swim cap situation in particular, um, the idea, like, what if we said that both men and women should compete in only Speedos? Even right. though women have, you know, breasts. I hope I can say that on this, you can. Talk, this radio show. Yes. Okay, good. Even though women have breasts, we should, and that would get in the way if you're trying to swim and you only had on a Speedo or a bottom, both men and women have to wear only bottom. Right. I right. mean, that's, that's ridiculous to think of, right? Like, that's a ridiculous thing to say to ask women to compete in the same manner as men um, because, you know, we're trying to have equity. Like we would never say that. So if I go, if I can go back to the swim cap situation, I, I just think it's 
absolutely absurd what you've said a couple of times. Um, and it's, it's absolutely racist. And there is no way that, you know, anyone can say that having this ruling is not a racist act. 100 percent. Yeah. And, and hopefully it will be changed. And and it should be. There's no there's no excuse for it. You could follow her at Neff Walker. She's at UMass Amherst, also SBM Journal and a book coming at some point. Thanks for the insight. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Nefertiti Walker with us here. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive makes bundling easy and affordable. Get a multi-policy discount by combining your car, home, motorcycle, commercial, auto, and more. All your protection in one place. Bundle and save at Progressive.com. Some interesting thoughts from the man in charge over at the NBA. Coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. That's right. They are playing basketball right now, Sarah. But the question is, is it all working out the way everybody hoped? Because obviously one of the big conversations we're having right now is about not just the players that are playing, but all the people that haven't made it through what is widely being called a war of attrition throughout the course of the NBA playoffs. Now, we did see Giannis come back last night for game one, and the hope is that that will mean he's there for the entirety of the series and everything will be golden. But also, I think I speak for many of us when I say every single time he made any explosive move, I found myself, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I found myself sort of holding my breath and saying, God, is he okay? Is this going to be okay? I can't stand seeing another injury. Right. I mean, this has been over and over and over again. So the fact that he's back is wonderful and you just cross your fingers because I also don't think we can rest easy now believing that the rest of the series goes by with fully healthy teams. Yeah, Spain and Fitz, by the way, brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. The road ahead is something that Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, is responsible for paving for the NBA. And he talked a little bit, not just about the injuries, but also about load management specifically and what it will mean this year or what it meant this year, I should say, load management in the NBA. We'll say, again, this is not something that's been talked a lot about in the context of injuries, but resting is up over 100% um, this season from last season. And the, the issue which we're trying to get to the root of is, does resting work, frankly? Does load management work? I mean, and there's different theories out there on it. And what's, what's most surprising, as I said, it's, it's not just about injuries up this season. We've seen this upward trend for several years. And... You'd like to believe that with the investment, the level of sophistication, the number of doctors, um, the, the amount of analytics we look at, the, the data we're able to collect that we couldn't in the, in, in the old days, that we, putting the pandemic aside, would have seen improvements. And we haven't seen that yet. And so, I mean, part of it, of course, load management or resting, there's an economic impact on that. There's no doubt. It's interesting to listen to because we do always seem to think that current body types and schedules and everything else are the reason for injury. But I hadn't really ever thought about his point that we don't know for sure that resting is the answer. There are so many other qualifications and specifics that have changed over the years to try to compare to, say, the age when you know nobody rested, everybody played almost every game and injuries just didn't feel like as much of an issue and fits, you know, some of them are things that I think experts on health would argue maybe are right in front of our face. Is it possible that these NBA athletes, for instance, are 
spending their free time sitting on their phones and maybe before they'd be walking or moving their body more often when they weren't actively participating in practice. I don't know. That sounds absurd, right? It's not that athletes aren't moving their bodies enough, but we all are so much more sedentary and that's created a ton of health issues across the broader population that we can't simply remove athletes from that because in between all of that, they're constantly moving at a fast pace or working really hard. There are still applications that are necessary when we think about how our lifestyles have changed. Well, and so much has changed and so much has changed this year. Also, like if you were making all of this into a big science experiment, the one thing you'd want to do is have a constant and then work on the variables, like just change one variable every time. The problem is I feel like all of the variables have changed. So looking at it and trying to figure out why we've gotten to this point is difficult. Like I'm not sure that there is an easier set answer. Adam Silver did talk about this year, particularly the rash of horrific injuries and what they're trying to figure out as a league. Been a lot of discussion around the injuries. You know, putting aside the specific data for a second, I, I have no doubt that the additional stress, again, physical and emotional on them, contributes to injuries. You know, none of it is an exact science. You know, it's, it's something that even pre-COVID, as you all know, we were very focused on at the league. We put people in place to focus exclusively on injury prevention. Precisely why we have the injuries we do is still unclear to us. It's something that we'll continue to study in the offseason. Um, the, the trend line, unfortunately, has been going up for the last several years, and that's despite um, the tremendous additional resources our teams have put into injury prevention, the brand-new um, practice facilities located throughout the league, the state-of-the-art equipment. Um, it's, it's horrific, and it's something that, um, of course, takes away um, from the competition. It all raises an interesting question because he's right. For all of the resources we continue to put in to making everybody healthier, healthier and safer, for all the resources we put in towards rest and things like that, it doesn't change the fact that this has happened and nobody really has an answer, Sarah. And I do like the fact that another point in the presser, he said, I think this was a successful season. I did the best I could. I'm always open to criticism and learning and changing. And I think that's one of the reasons people respect him as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that makes Adam Silver different than most of the uh, commissioners across the landscape of sports. All right. Speaking of Adam Silver, all eyes are on the Bucks and the Suns. The question is, what can Milwaukee do to outshine the Suns in the next game? We'll answer that question. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Apparently, the entire series is over. The Suns have won one game, and that means the Bucks are done. Or are they? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline, and the NBA Finals are on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night for Game 2 as the Suns host the Bucks. presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 8 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN radio stations. Now, if you've listened to this show at all, ever, since the time Sarah and I have been working together, you know that we're not going to come in and say all hope is lost and all is done. So now the question becomes, what can the Bucks do? Because realistically, this is a Milwaukee team that has trailed in every series in the playoffs. This is a Milwaukee team that was down 0-2 to Brooklyn. This is a Milwaukee team that we've been basically ready to give up on several times throughout the course of the playoffs. Yet here they are, down one game to Phoenix. And Sarah, I'm not willing to say anything after one game other than that was a really good first round of a fight that I still think has plenty of action left. 
I don't know why anyone would be willing to put themselves out there in a sort of prisoner of the moment situation, not just in the NBA, where weren't we supposed to be watching Lakers Nets, right? Wasn't that like a decided thing months ago? Or how about the NFL? Weren't we supposed to be celebrating another Super Bowl win for the Chiefs? Like, when are we going to learn? Right. And, you, and do you remember to that point when we when we picked our upsets in the first round and we said which upsets most likely to happen and everybody we the Lakers were on that list. Yeah. We got destroyed on Twitter destroyed. by everybody coming in and saying, uh, according to Las Vegas, uh, yeah, the, the so Lakers are the favorite. technically favorite. Yeah. 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 I mean, my God, yeah. like that guy was all in on why the Suns were going to lose in the right. first round. Right. Uh, that being said, there's plenty of reasons. And we talked with Kevin Arnovitz about this. Hard, fast, factual, proven ways that the Milwaukee Bucks are better at specific things that they were not good at last night. Now, is it the matchup? Let's wait and see, right? There may be things that the Suns are doing to take them out of the game that they excel at. But there's also completely wild swings in series. Milwaukee can foul less. They need to play cleaner defense and not send the Suns to the line because, as we heard, they are a spectacular free throw team. In fact, Brian Windhorst was on Greeny today talking about how you are giving them a gift if you let them go to the free throw line all night. The Phoenix Suns use the foul shot like a weapon. They're the number one free throw shooting team in the playoffs of all time when you take away the teams that have not just you know been for three games and out. Number one all time. And last night they go 25 of 26 at the line. Milwaukee is not a good free throw shooting team, mostly because of Giannis. They made nine free throws in the game. They lose by 13, and the free throw differential is 16. And what you know, what uh, the Suns were able to do is because they had advantages in the pick and roll, they were able to get to the line, especially Devin Booker. Booker was 10 of 10 at the line. He didn't shoot the ball well, but was able to get in position where he'd get fouled. And so, when it, you know, I know that there's schematic issues, you know, that we're going to be talking about in that pick and roll, what have you, but you can't put the Suns on the foul line because it's giving them two points, and that is a huge strategy point for them. Two points times the fact that they finished 25 of 26 from the line. So efficient. And Milwaukee was, what, 16 or 17? I mean, this was a massive disparity. And when you look at that, you know, that being given to them while Middleton didn't shoot a single free throw, while we saw a lot of the drives from the Bucks not result in any calls, is that is that going to also change? You know, the whistles change a ton when you get back to Milwaukee. How does that affect type of play? Yeah, absolutely. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You think about aggressiveness that we talked about earlier, and if Milwaukee is going to, to stick, and we don't know this right now, but if Milwaukee decides to stay big, basically, if you're going to be big, you better be aggressive, right? I mean, that's the, the one thing that I would think we would expect to see. And also, as much as we've talked about the, the pick and roll and how difficult it is, I will go to my nerdy analytic moment here. Uh, because the Bucks switched 43 times on picks. That's the most switches the Suns have seen on pick plays all season. That stood out to me because, frankly, when they switched, they didn't do well. When they didn't mm-hmm. switch throughout the course of the game, mm-hmm. they actually did okay. And that speaks to something we expected because the analytics people coming in to the game said that we, you know, Milwaukee throughout the course of the season uh, and even through the playoffs, when they're facing pick plays, have played off. Their approach has not been to step up and play through it. That's a change I think now that they've seen it in person, felt it out and figured out where they are, I would expect to see a different defensive strategy there. I mean, it seems it, it seems to me to be sort of stuck in a bubble if we don't think that the Bucks are going to look at all of this data and say, hey, maybe we should try something different. Like they, they got here because they are good at something. 
Right. Agreed. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And that's part of the point. They were criticized all year for not being willing to be flexible on dropping their big man back instead of switching. And then they switch and now they're getting killed for switching because who switches against CP3 on the pick and roll? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a constant battle of wits with this team because to, to Kevin's point earlier and to what we see in every game, Chris Paul runs this team slowly, methodically and consistently. And if you try to push the pace and take him out of being able to do that, you give yourself a good chance. And and if you stay aggressive to your point when you go big, you're taking advantage of what you have that they don't instead of playing their style of game. Giannis has played every team in the league at least 12 times in his career, and his highest field goal percentage is against the Suns, nearly 60%. When he's fully healthy, will he be more effective? You know, it's a different Suns team than previous years. Chris Paul being on there changes things a lot. But he averaged 40 points against them every single time they met this season. And to me, this feels like uh, we, we we get a different game when Giannis can be his best throughout and not tire because he's returning from injury. Yeah, a thousand percent. And that's where the schedule also is going to matter. Spain and Fitz, you know, when we talk about getting Giannis healthy, as much as going home will help a team anyway get healthy, there's also a moment of you got one day off and then you're back at it. Again, ESPN Radio is where you should listen to it tomorrow night. But you got one game off and you're back at it if you're Milwaukee and if you're Giannis. But then you get Friday, Saturday before you have a game on Sunday. And you get Monday, Tuesday before you have a game on Wednesday. So they get that extra day off in those situations. So another reason that I think we have to remember that this thing's far from over is just because the way the schedule plays out there's the opportunity for everybody to get a little bit of rest, which is going to help Giannis. If he is right on the edge of being who he can be, having an extra day's rest is a very, very big deal. So I think I've got to really see not just game two, but I'd like to get into game three before we decide anything's over and out for Milwaukee and their ability to compete in this series. You know who seems to agree with you is P.J. Carlissimo, who was on Freddie and Fitzsimmons last night, and said there's actually a lot to take away from this that should leave the Bucks encouraged. If I'm Milwaukee, honestly, I'm encouraged. Game one in the finals is always a feeling-out game. You have two teams that don't know each other quite as well. First three rounds of the playoff, you're playing somebody from your own conference. You, in a normal year, you played them four times. This year, they played each other three times. But over the years, you've played this team a ton of times. You know them very well. These two teams don't know each other very well. And that's what the first game is often about. So now it's going to be to the adjustments what's going to happen. Uh, the Bucks cannot shoot the ball the way they did in the paint. They had so many opportunities in the paint. They couldn't finish. They didn't get second-chance points, which they're about, about the best in the whole league in doing it. And Drew Holiday had, mm-hmm. by his standards, a nightmare game. He's going to play a lot better going forward. It's mm-hmm. easy to look at it and say, hey, Drew Holiday had a bad game, but so did Devin Booker by his standards, at least shooting efficiency. So, you know, it's easy to, to look in this and make a lot of, hey, it could go better, it could go different. But for my money, anytime we've seen one matchup in the NBA, in any playoff series in the NBA, all we can take away from that is that's just, it's like the pawns moving at the beginning of a chess match. Like, we've mm-hmm. got to expect that this is so early, at some point we're going to expect to see a ton of change. Spain and Fitz, Fitz on ESPN real quick, oh, yep. let me just give you a stat about that, you know, it wasn't the best game for Giannis. He was the only Buck starter with a positive plus minus at plus one. No other mm. starter was better than minus 11. So not only do we expect to see better from Giannis when he's 100%, but we also expect to see more complete games from the other guys on the starting lineup. Oh, it's great stuff, by the way. All right, coming up next, one hitter is responsible for some of the most unique calls in Major League Baseball One hitters history. are? Wow. 
Uh, Can't wait well, to hear well, about well, that. One hitter, is, yeah. I I don't know. I, I'm just reading. Mobile oh, Zappa. I get it. Hey, People who hit baseballs. Yeah, yeah. One hitter is responsible. See, see. <laughs> yes, it makes sense. You know what? We're going to tell you a really phenomenal <laughs> baseball thing that you won't believe until you hear it. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain, Jason Fitz, back with you here on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Going to talk a little MLB at the half coming up. Lots to get into. Uh, probably won't have time to talk about the Cubs, though, unfortunately. We just don't just have one another time on that one. Time. And since we don't have much time, we got to get to a bunch of other stuff in sports. The only way we know how, which is quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. We're actually going to start quickies in baseball. We're a little late on this story, but it's just too good to miss just because we were off last night. Nick Castellanos, who was a Cub at one point, and they decided not to resign him for some reason, but that's a story for another time, is on the Reds. And he has somehow managed to time his dingers at the most inopportune time for those speaking, but in a way that is the most entertaining for everybody else. You may recall that Tom Brenneman, who used to work for Fox Sports Ohio and then resigned, using quotation marks, after he was suspended for uh, saying a homophobic slur on a hot mic, tried to apologize during that game, and it, it sounded like this. I pride myself and think of myself as a, a man of faith, as there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos that <laughs> will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4 nothing ball game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I don't know if it's going to be for the Reds. I don't know if it's going to be for my bosses at Fox. I want to apologize. Yeah, so that became a full-on meme. And if you've ever seen anyone start typing a sentence to you and interrupt themselves with that uh, call, I'm pretty sure uh, you've been a part of it. Uh, But Castellanos doubled down. And here's what it sounded like the other night as the Reds were playing the Royals. Well, we're going to tell you about a great man. And it's a loss for the Royals family. This is George Gorman, who passed away at the age of 96. He served our country in World War II. He went to the University of Kansas, and so did his son, Pat Gorman, who's been working for the Royals in the clubhouse for 26 years. Wow. And that was Pat's father. Well, that's a great life, 96 years. And Pat, just like his dad, went to KU. He also went to Bishop Ward High School. There's a drive into deep left center field, and there's never a great time to eulogize someone during the broadcast, so we apologize for the timing. Yeah, I don't want to laugh, but come on! How do you keep doing this? By the way, that was Bally Sports Cincinnati. And Fitz, according to rumor, his very first home run as a professional baseball player, was during Osama bin Laden's assassination. And oh that is God. not a joke. Yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> that, there's, there's a moment, too, where I, I really respect the, the call of saying, hey, there's never a great time to eulogize someone. There's a bad time, like the middle of the game. Yeah, like maybe, when Castellanos maybe is when, up. Yeah, like, hey, yes, like just look at the batting order and be like, nope, not going to take that off. And be like, right. wait till they're Maybe when the, the pitcher's at bat or something. Yeah, like, so well, like, pitching like, change, even better. <laughs> No, it's just like you've got a whole a very long broadcast for somebody to get in your ear and be like, hey, let's hold off and wait and do this for a couple of minutes later. Oh, I'm just saying. So good. All right, next story. Quickies. So 
I did not watch a lot of the match part three, Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers beating Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady. It was, uh, it was beautiful. It was in big sky, Montana. Everything looked picturesque as far as the clips and photos I saw from it. There's just been actually it was the fourth version. There's just been a lot of these and the conceit was interesting at first. And now I just wait for the highlights to come out and Fitz. Uh, this was one of the highlights. Tom Brady having a little fun with Aaron Rodgers during a fake Jeopardy segment. He's an NBA owner, a self-taught guitarist, and has guest starred in both The Office and Game of Thrones. Mm. He's unhappy with his boss and has no options. Who is Aaron Rodgers? Ding, ding. That is correct. Well done. Projection, Tom. I never said I'm unhappy with my boss. <laughs> I said it, not you. <laughs> wow. And they kept trying to get him to comment Fitz throughout the day. He never was willing to make any statements about his future with the Packers, but he was willing to do a service to all of us by beating Tom Brady. And I'd like to say that from now on, I think the match is always going to be worth watching if it means we all get to watch Tom Brady finally lose something and he keeps doing it at these. So I'm here for it. It's like that one game show where everybody tries in trivia to take on the guy that's sitting up on the throne that's just better at everybody else at trivia. Like, that's how like I feel like. Like, stump the Schwab kind of vibes? Yeah, like, that, it's got that thing going. Like, that's where I am at this point with Brady. Any chance to watch Brady lose, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be all <laughs> in on it. But, Which uh, is a compliment to him, and we know that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, let's be real about it. Tom Brady would be the greatest of all time if he'd ever won the silver and black, but he didn't. So, wow, okay. Oh, yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, Spain and Fitz. I'm doing quickies. Next story. Quickies. So there's been some conversation around Kevin Love's uh, existence on the 12-man roster for the U.S. Olympic men's basketball team. He's been injured, hasn't really been the all-star guy that he used to be, and Greg Popovich spoke out to ESPN and said, we're going to work his bleep off for the next four to five weeks and demand a lot. That's going to definitely get him back in rhythm. He needs to be in to continue to play. I think that's one of the big reasons he wanted to do this, so he can get himself back to who he was. So Popovich, the one who decided to offer Love a spot on the team, according to reporting. Fitz, does that change it at all for you, that this was up to the discretion of Pop and that he felt like in some way he wanted Love to be a part of it as opposed to some of the criticism of of those who have said he's sort of a token as one of the perhaps only white player on the team? Uh, no, uh, and, and look, I think – it's not about the token criticism to me. What really bothered me about what pop was saying is like, I understand that's his right as the coach for team USA, but there are so many qualified players right now that are incredible. Why are we giving one of those spots to somebody that's trying to use it to work themselves back in shape? I, that, that, that I understand the logic on it, but it just, to me, there was this moment of you know, how much is somebody else looking around saying, okay, so you, you wanted to help Kevin love out. And now I don't get to try and battle for a medal. Right. Like, uh, that that yeah. that really hit me the wrong way. Well, we talked about this with the women's Olympic basketball team. It's a unique thing because unlike, say, you know, track and field where you qualify by having the best time, it's super subjective. Even gymnastics, they, they this year decided to make decisions almost entirely based off of the numbers. But the subjectivity is always going to create consternation from some people. And I think you're right. Kevin Love isn't at the level of other players we've seen given another chance at the Olympics because of their greatness. So it's more confusing than bringing along some dream team member again, even though they might not be at their prime. It's it's still kind of surprising to see him on that roster. All right, next story. Quickies. Fitz, I haven't really been watching much of the Euros. Almost everything I see is social media reacting and the number of times I either get tagged in something about Spain 
<laughs> or somebody exclaims something like heartbreak for Spain or you can never let Spain get hot or various things that I then respond to cheekily with a gif. Uh, but I'm hearing that it might be coming home. Well, I, I, you know, I'm not smart enough to know any of that, but I am smart <laughs> enough to know that it's about it is England captivated. And, yeah. Yeah. It's captivated everybody's attention. I will say this, like it's a, a bit of a moment, you know, tip of the hat to Denmark, who obviously uh, almost lost a teammate through this process and now made this uh, absolutely unexpected run. Uh, even in, in losing today, you have to look at it and say it's been an incredible story. And sometimes those happen in sports where it really galvanizes everybody and brings everybody together. So it's made the Euros, I think, even uh, more incredible to watch, just to watch teammates that uh, you know had, the, had this opportunity. It's been really cool for them. Final on Sunday, England, Italy. And that is an excuse for all of us to eat pizza. And I guess bangers and mash if you want. I don't know. Yeah. I'm good with just I'll go to pizza. a pub and watch it. There you go. Go to a pub and have some pizza. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. You can save big when you bundle your auto, home, motorcycle, RV, or boat. Visit Progressive.com. Ryan Spielberg is going to join us next to talk about a little baseball. It's coming up next on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Nearing the halfway mark of the MLB season. A lot of surprises, a lot of disappointments. Fitz still hasn't chosen a team. In fact, we've kind of gotten behind on our college, or sorry, our Major League Baseball bachelor. We'll get back to that soon. But in the meantime, we got to catch up on everything we've seen thus far and what we can predict will happen in the second half. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Joining us now on the Goodyear Hotline, Ryan Spielborgs of MLB Radio. It's time for the progressive MLB snapshot. And let's get a snapshot of this first half. Ryan, you know, one of our ESPN writers, Bradford Doolittle, wrote a little bit about some of his surprises. And the biggest one to him was the Giants' first half record. Do you agree with that? I'm fine with that. And first off, thanks for having me on. I love you guys' show. Big fan. Thanks. Um, thanks. And I'll go back to something you said at the very beginning, Sarah, because I got to get, I, I have to. Clear the air with something. But um, first off, the, the San Francisco Giants, super fun. I had them as being relevant a year from now. I didn't have them as being ready to go this year. It was a transition year. I had them similar to the Chicago Cubs where you had some free agency. You had a bunch of dollars coming off the books. And I didn't see like a lot, lot, like a lot of prospects or anything really. So it was a veteran team, which I appreciate. I like, I like veteran teams. I like veteran players. But what they've done and how they go about doing it, you you know, if you're a Philadelphia Phillies fan, are you wishing that you had Gabe Kapler back or not? Um, you know, I'm just looking at some of the outside-the-box thinking that they've done because they, they really have as you start to break them down. Buster Posey's playing three days a week, and it's the best offensive numbers he's had all year. Kevin Gossman was a reclamation project two years ago coming out of Baltimore. Uh, they bring him over there, and he's throwing his – uh, fork ball all the time, and he's basically virtually unhittable. Anthony Discalfani, for you know, for example, the Yankees could have had him. The same guy for six million dollars. He's been fantastic. Uh, like all of these moves that the Giants have made, have from the eyes of like the national baseball, it surprised people. But then when you think about it and you look at it, you go, okay, I can see it. I can I can see why uh, the Giants are where they're at. Now going back to what I wanted to ask you, Sarah. You said the MLB season. So I don't know if you're saying the MLB season or 
the MLB. Like you're right. The NFL you're right. It's Major League Baseball. NBA. It's not the Major League Baseball. Kind of like how it's okay. RBI and not RBIs. Okay. Whew. All right. So we're friends again. All right. Cool. So I Perfect. just want to make got sure it. that we're Nailed not it. calling it the MLB. Okay. No, got it. No, Good. we shouldn't do that. Look at that. I'm, well, I'm glad we worked that out. I mean, that that's uh, now my mind's a little blown. All right. So, Ryan, uh, as you look early on uh, through this season, if you look at the halfway point at somebody that's really good, who's out there that you think isn't – what team is out there that you think isn't sustainable to the level of success they're having so far? Um, so that one's a great question because you can almost throw the Giants back into there, um, especially when you consider the Dodgers really haven't played Dodger baseball even though they won nine straight and then they lost the last two. Uh, Padres really haven't hit full stride. But when I look at, I mean, like a lot of the conversations this offseason was about the National League East, and this is the one where I have the biggest trouble figuring out. Because I love, if I was to go division by division, I'm a big fan of Milwaukee. I think that that one's their division to win. So I think the NL Central is solved. I think the American West is solved with the Houston Astros. I think the AL Central is solved with the Cubs. Uh, American League East, we can have a discussion in a second. But for the for the National League East, when I look at the Mets, and I love their pitching staff, but I don't love their defense, and I don't, don't love their offense. And even though I look at the teams like the, the Washington Nationals, I look at the Braves, who still haven't shown up yet in 2021, and I'm not a buyer of the Phillies, but they can still do damage, I think the Mets, of all those teams, probably are the ones that you could point at and go, they might not be able to sustain it until they tighten some things up. Well, let's talk about the opposite. And Ryan Spielberg's of MLB Network is with us here on Spain and Fitz. You know, I'm wondering if there's a team that's hovering close enough to make a run in the second half that you think is underperformed and has a real shot to get to where you expected them to be in the second half. Uh, Another good one. So, Atlanta's got to be in that conversation because I think there's moves to be made there. Uh, This is a team that's a publicly traded company. We know what their finances are. We know how much they lost last year. Uh, It's also unfortunate they lost the All-Star game. I I mean, that's a total sub-story if you want to have that one. Uh, But the Braves, I think they have the horsepower. They have certainly the players um, to be better than what they are. The 42 and 44, the five games out, if I go and I fall in line with my, my thought process that they'll be able to catch the Mets, um, I think the Braves are the team that you can look at. I mean, they've won three straight divisions. And when I look at the season for them, it has been injuries. They've lost Soroka. They lost Max Freed. Um, they lost Marcelo Zuna to just being a total goober and a total, I don't ever want to see that guy ever again. Um, but there's some moves in there that I think would make a lot of sense for the Atlanta Braves that will get them back right to the spot where I think they can be. Um, but like I said earlier, they, they have not shown these signs over the course of this year that they're a division winner. Ryan, how does everything shake out for the Yankees by the time the year said uh, all said and done? Uh, Fitz, I, I would say Yankees, in, and I've said this on MLB Network Radio all the time, Try not to pass judgment on them yet. Uh, Try to hold off as long as possible. It's not like they're the Chicago Cubs where they have a bunch of free agents to be. Um, You know, you can stick a fork in the Cubs, but the Yankees, (sighs) there's, I know, I'm sorry, Sarah. Um, (laughs) They're in a, the the Yankees are in a division where I think the Red Sox, the shoe's not going to fall off. The Rays are really good. 
But there's a wild card in that. There's another wild card spot in there. And with the Yankees, if there's no, there's virtually no flexibility with their salary cap. Um, they can't trade anybody because he's taking John Carlos in. So, like, I just think that this is the team that you you, you go you go to the dance with who with who brought you and kind of let this thing go. And if everything implodes, like it, it's kind of shown signs over the course of the year. At the end of the year, there's probably um, several moves that need to be made, uh, more from the management side versus personnel, because you can't fire personnel. That's the problem, is that there's too many long-term contracts, and you can't just get rid of the entire personnel. So the Yankees, I would hang in there. That would be the team that I would love to pass judgment on them uh, later on in August, but I can see them making a move in their division. Ryan Spielberg's with us here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, just because I prefer to name these things, Marcelo Zuna, less of a goober, more uh, arrested and charged with aggravated assault, strangulation, and misdemeanor battery. But I got your point on that one, and it's a point taken. I want to ask about something lighter, and that is my ire with MLB. See, just MLB that time. For giving uniforms across baseball for the All-Star game that, first of all, are hideous, but secondly, prevents us from having the rainbow hue of different uniforms across the field that is one of the better parts of the All-Star game. Do you agree with me that the idea of having the same uniforms for every player on the team is dumb? Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Um, and if you, if, if people are going to ask you about the uniforms this year, uh, there's Magnolias still on the National League and American League uniforms that are supposed to represent Atlanta right. and Georgia. But then also mountains and, for Colorado. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah, they don't, they don't mean anything <laughs> for Colorado. So, I mean, like if they want to put a poppy on there, fine. Um, but I, I don't know how to respond to this one because I, at the end of this one too, Sarah, and I think you get it, you know, the economic impact of losing the game in Atlanta is serious. I also think what has occurred, you know, from the politics side, I'll, I'll refrain from it, but uh, it's certainly a discussion. I would have loved to have seen players in their uniforms. I think that's the allure of the game to me, but I also like, I like the thought process of, of thinking that we can all be on the same team for 24 hours. So if there is any of that in you, uh, I can I can understand that sentiment. But I'm a, I'm an old school. I love all the different uniforms on the field. Like that's my favorite. Ryan, that's an old school. And look, so many baseball fans are purists. And I mean, you're talking about the All Star Game, but we've also seen some just weird alternate jerseys, like the Giants all jerseys were an interesting decision? Like, are, are baseball fans as a whole buying these alternate looks? I would say yes and no. I'm not sure how Giants fans are picking on the City Connect Fog jerseys, but I'll tell you the Red Sox ones were fire. And it was also sort of the Miami Marlins one. It was, uh, it was paying homage to the Sugar Kings, a Cuban baseball team. Um, you know, with the Red Sox one, that was uh, definitely, you know, going back to the Boston Marathon and, and what happened with the bombing several years ago. So all those colors and all those um, things represented, you know, what it, what had happened for Boston Strong. So, like, that stuff, that resonates with me. But the fog on an orange G-Man jersey for San Francisco Giants, like, I, I don't know. I just thought, I thought there was more to San Francisco baseball. And even if I go back into the Negro Leagues from the San Francisco Seals, um, like I, I would have been okay with, with, uh, you know, a version of that as well. I, I, I don't know. I'm not a marketing genius. Um, <laughs> so I don't ever claim to know what's going through the minds of, of some of these marketing people. 
Um, but I think a couple of these fell flat. I don't mind them because they remind me of the Warriors jerseys, which I like, but they also remind me of the Warriors jerseys, which is maybe not the best approach to it. Hey, thanks for the time, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. All right, you guys. Be good. Ryan Spielborg's with us here on Spain and Fitz. You can catch him on MLB Radio. We're brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $700 on average. Up next, can we actually affect change? We'll talk about it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Sarah, I always love nuanced conversation. And I think sometimes... It's easy to jump up and down and yell and scream about things without having full context and understanding to what's happening. And that's happened to a large extent for some people when it comes to uh, the, the Olympics. And we talked about it earlier, but specifically when you start talking about the Olympics and weed. And, you know, there isn't a, an easy solution when it comes to drug testing. But one thing that I think is important to note is that we have to understand that the Olympics are a global event, right? So when we start talking about whether or not marijuana should or shouldn't be allowed uh, for an, any Olympian uh, and what they should be tested for, I think one thing that hits me is we have to remember that U.S. track and field has to follow any policy that comes along with the World Anti-Doping Agency, and that's just part of the Olympic policy. So sometimes it's hard for me to see how we're supposed to make massive statements about what's happening to our athletes when, in fact, it's a global issue. I agree, but I also think we understand our own power, and uh, we understand the ways that other countries have been able to influence decision-making. I pointed to it earlier. I think that was on the air, although it's hard to remember what we were talking. I think this might've been before the show actually, but we were talking about decision-making by USADA and, and the Olympic committee and the ruling first put down for Russia for a coordinated countrywide doping effort in the Olympics was to first offer up a four year suspension while still allowing some athletes to compete because they weren't implicated despite it being a nationwide effort and then to reduce that to two years. So at some point they decided to take it easy on and limit the restrictions against a massive performance enhancing effort. This is weed, which if anything would slow you down and make you reach for some Doritos. And yet we don't feel like there's any recourse or action to be taken on behalf of Shikari Richardson. And she then wasn't selected for the relays to be able to compete in a way outside of of the race that she will, won't be able to be returned to action for. And I agree with people that, yes, she knew the rules and yes, she shouldn't have done it. But I also think that we are so far beyond the wagging the finger at someone and doing so without understanding the context of mental health, without understanding the disproportionate way that rules around drug policy affect black people and without having a meaningful discussion about how dumb this is and if this is dumb and we all agree it's dumb, how do we change it instead of just saying she should have known better? I think that's a huge part of it, Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, what you just said is, you know, I can acknowledge as somebody that obviously supports legalization, I can acknowledge that obviously the, the benefits. <clears throat> well, I mean, if anyone's listened to this show for more than two seconds, you have <laughs> or a pretty good idea that, I mean, yeah, I mean, th- there's a spot here for me where I'm pretty transparent about you know, what I think is, is the good that can come from it and uh, the, the positive impact, frankly, it's had in, in my own life with anxiety and 
you know, a lot of different issues uh, that, that are important. And now that being said, I am often the person that does then turn around and say, hey, rules are rules. And, and I've said before in the past that, you know, you, you have to look across the landscape and say, what is my employer? Or what is my situation expect? And it's right. not always it's not always easy. Not that always being fair so- either. And sometimes really dumb. But yeah, you can't uh, change them in the moment. You have to work to get, create systemic change. But I think probably where I got lazy on this, and I'm the first to throw myself under the bus, is what you just said, creating systemic change. Because uh, as we were talking earlier uh, with Dr. Walker, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to Dr. Walker, about uh, <laughs> everything that, that's going on right now and the, the Olympic policies and procedures that are out there. She made it clear that, you know, that, that we should be standing up and demanding for better, basically, as America, we should be going to the Olympic Committee and saying, hey, this is what is important. And I asked her the question, do you think if we did that, we could actually affect change? This is what she said. I mean, I would imagine, yes, I have to believe that. I have to believe that um, if, in particular, us as, as a country, but if other countries went to them with reasonable explanations geared towards inclusion, I mean, this is at the heart of all of these various federations. If you look at their constitutions, if you look at their mission statements, even on their website, they're speaking about making a global impact and reaching societies all across the globe, yet they're enforcing and perpetuating policies and norms and these structures that exclude people. It just doesn't align. There's significant misalignment with what they say they do and how they say that they're impacting the world and what they're actually doing with their policies. I mean, go ahead, sir. I've said this before, like the the Olympics are right up there with FIFA and the NCAA in terms of the worst organizations. I mean, the Olympics are founded on a lie. The idea that hosting them will benefit you while lower income people are often forced out of their homes, while like transportation that allows people to do everyday jobs and, and continue with their lives is eradicated in order to create, you know, easy tracks for the venues and things. I mean, we literally years ago on the trifecta, RIP trifecta, me, Kate Fagan and Jay McManus came up with the idea of Olympic Island, which is a man-made Island that every Olympics is held on because there was just no reason for countries to still put in a bid. And the lie has been told enough that, that some countries are onto it, but others are still vying to host knowing how it will negatively affect people who live there and in the long term financially set them back. And so, her commentary is not is not only right just when it comes to policies, social issues and how it affects athletes, but society in general. It is very fun during the games to get caught up in the moment of Olympic dreams. But the reality is it is not the thing that we all hold it up to be. It's such an interesting point to be in when you look at something. And I think, you know, as I continue this constant process of trying to look around in life and figure things out, one thing that that really hits me is how easy it is to say, well, if you don't like things, then change things. If you don't like the rules, then change them. And there are daunting processes that have to go through all of that together. Sometimes I think I get caught in the, well, if you don't like it, then change it. But also we can't change it because we're just America. There's probably a halfway on all of this. And, And it hits me listening back to what she said about, you know, it's not just us. I mean, how many people, would join us. I've, I've made the joke earlier today, understanding it's a joke, but I mean, Amsterdam's got to be sitting back saying, hey, we've been telling you all for a long time. Right. This is a dumb rule. Right. Like, there right. are certain countries that have to be looking at and saying, hey, we've been progressive on this for a really long time. Right. And while it's easy to say, hey, America doesn't have the power to change this by ourselves, 
I'm not sure that that doesn't mean we don't have the power to bring people together and see how many countries align with us and then go as a unit to the Olympic Committee and say, hey, this is dumb, and a lot of us feel that way. I also think it doesn't need to be a referendum on legalizing or even endorsing marijuana, which, again, is a plant and is probably less dangerous than alcohol in most cases. Um, It's just about saying that taking the lead of, say, the, the leagues in America that don't punish for it, right? We're not endorsing it. We're not saying do it while you're competing. We're saying this is not a performance-enhancing drug and therefore will not be a part of our testing. And that is a much easier place to get to for the Olympics than trying to get them to, you know, say, adopt Amsterdam's uh, opinion. But everything moves so slowly. And Fitz, what we talked about with Neff is, is important, too. Sometimes if you don't dive deep enough, you think that things are coincidental or accidental and if you dig in, you find that they are intentional. And I would not be surprised if many of the policies disproportionately affecting people are actually done intentionally. And now I've run us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening to Spain and Fitz. Freddie and Fitzsimmons <laughs> coming up next. More on that next time. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.